0: Today, on this episode of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight.
1: And so all of these dimensions of cognitive function impair how people function in the day-to-day environment. People notice that you can't remember or that you're, you, you didn't pay attention so you didn't hear what your boss said.
0: Today, Dr. Sanjay Rao and Don Veligan joined the podcast to discuss the three symptom domains of schizophrenia, positive, negative, and cognitive impairment in part one of this PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. All opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the views of this educational initiative supporters. Hello,
2: I'm Sanjay Rao, a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego and a staff psychiatrist at the San Diego VA.
1: Hi Sanjay, it's great to see you. I'm Don Veligan. I'm from the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio.
2: Thanks so much for joining me today, Dawn.
1: My pleasure, Sanjay.
2: So, Dawn, today I wanted to talk with you about the three symptom domains that we see in schizophrenia, positive symptoms, negative symptoms, and cognitive impairment. And I'd really like to get into how we think about these symptoms today and how the full spectrum of symptoms in schizophrenia, and in particular the symptoms of cognitive impairment, might not be adequately recognized. That sound okay to you?
1: That sounds great, Sanjay. So, to start us off, can you briefly talk about the dimensions of positive symptoms and negative symptoms? Because pretty long ago, that's all we had were those two domains.
2: Yeah, you know, thanks for asking. You know, this is our this is the way we classically conceptualize schizophrenia: that you have a bunch of different symptoms and that we've split them up into these two domains of positive and negative. And the way that I think of what these are, positive symptoms you can think of as things that are added on to what you would consider to be a normal presentation. So symptoms that happen, things that people experience that they really shouldn't be experiencing. And so here we're talking about things like auditory hallucinations or other kinds of hallucinations, delusions, things like paranoia, Uh, disorganized thoughts and speech and disorganized behavior, uh, perhaps excitatory catatonic activity. So things like this, things that really shouldn't be seen in the presentation of a person that doesn't have schizophrenia. And then on the flip side, you have things that we've historically thought of as negative symptoms, and they're called negative symptoms, I think, because they're essentially deficits in the presentation. So there are things that we would expect to see in people without schizophrenia, but that in people with schizophrenia we don't see. And these are historically split up into a couple of different domains. One of these domains is a deficiency in expression. And so, if you have a patient with schizophrenia who has profound negative symptoms, they may have very little facial expression, what we call blunted affect uh, or even flat affect. And they often won't talk very much, what we call a logia. And then the second domain that negative symptoms typically fall into are deficiencies in pleasure and motivation. And so here you have a syndrome where patients don't seem to get any reward out of anything they do. They don't seem to get any pleasure out of anything they do. We call this anhedonia. And as a result, they tend not to do much. So they don't like going out and seeing people. Uh, We think of this as asociality. They don't even really want to initiate actions, get out of bed, go do anything. Uh, We think of this as avolition. Uh, there's some really interesting theories about this being driven by reward circuitry or deficiencies in reward circuitry. And so the idea is that the patient doesn't actually experience pleasure in their brain from doing these things and, in fact, doesn't even experience the idea of pleasure if they think about doing these things. And so, of course, they're not motivated to do these things.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense. I know that... when you think about negative symptoms, those are the symptoms that really bother family members the most, and they're really uh, disturbing. People will say to me, oh, it's like his personality is gone. And so um, why is it that clinicians spend so much time on positive symptoms in their treatment and not really as much on negative symptoms?
2: Oh, well, such a good question. I think there's a few key reasons, and, and I'll give a little background first. I'm an inpatient psychiatrist, And I will tell you that I've never had a patient brought in by the police because they didn't want to leave their home or because they didn't want to see their friends, right? This is not why people with schizophrenia will typically present to an acute setting. So they come in because they're having voices or they're getting really paranoid or their family has been noticing all these things or because of these experiences they become agitated and they act out and they come to the attention of the police and the police bring them in, right? And so these are the symptoms that typically get noticed by the patient, uh, by the family in an acute way, although, as you said, a family definitely noticed the negative side as well, but the reasons they will often bring the patient in are because of the positive symptoms. And, of course, this is the thing that gets you in trouble with law enforcement. And then sort of a corollary to that is the unfortunate reality that... All of our treatments right now, or most of our treatments right now, are quite decent at treating positive symptoms and not so decent at treating negative symptoms. And so if you can kind of think of the old expression of, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The hammer we have is our conventional antipsychotic medications, and the nail is positive symptoms. And so we tend to look for and recognize and, and, uh, uh, and kind of focus in on the things that we are actually good at treating and the things that we can monitor, the things that we can say hey, today you have fewer hallucinations than yesterday or you're no longer paranoid or you're more organized. And, and the contrast to that, of course, is negative symptoms where, you know, this is kind of like the quiet kid in the corner of the classroom that doesn't cause anybody any trouble and never gets noticed. And, and that's kind of what it's like. If you're not doing anything, you're not expressing yourself, you know, you're just sort of sitting there, you're unlikely to get noticed and you yourself are unlikely to report that. So patients with schizophrenia typically will not report the fact that they have negative symptoms as much as they'll report, say, that they have hallucinations.
1: Right. I agree. And I also think that because we can't treat negative symptoms very well, um, we're not very good at assessing them. So, I I really think clinicians don't know exactly what questions to ask or what to look for. And I think that as we develop new treatments that might focus on negative symptoms, we're going to need to Um, help people learn how to assess them in a regular clinical interview.
2: You know, I I think that's so important, especially because the classic conceptualization of negative symptoms is that they only happen later in your illness and it happens sort of after you've had chronic schizophrenia for a long time. And I think we've discovered that this is really not the case, that negative symptoms can be seen much earlier in illness, you know, during early phase schizophrenia, and correct me if I'm wrong, but even in the prodrome.
1: Absolutely. We see kids all the time that just kind of look like they're deteriorating. They were functioning okay, and then they just kind of withdraw from everything, like you're talking about, and they don't have affect, and they don't have motivation. And, and so it can happen very early in the illness.
2: Well, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I think maybe we'll switch gears now and focus a little bit more on cognitive impairment. And, and so here, I, uh, I'd like to ask, could you talk a little bit about the aspects of cognitive impairment and schizophrenia, Uh, what our current understanding of this is?
1: Certainly. There are a lot of dimensions of impaired cognition for people who have schizophrenia. So first of all, there are impairments in attention, the ability to pay attention to things that require effort, the ability to focus attention on what's important. So for example, you know, if you're in a crowded um, waiting room and someone's trying to give you directions to where you can get food stamps, you can't focus on what they're telling you because there's so much going on around you. So our ability to focus attention is impaired. And then if you look at memory, memory's impaired for information and for faces, so across multiple domains of memory. And then there's trouble with what we call executive functions. And these are, uh, our executive functions are our ability to plan and carry out goal-directed activity. So to finish a goal, you got to be able to get an idea. You have to initiate Um, You have to be able to sequence what you do in order, Um, so you have to be able to plan things out. You also have to use judgment, and you have to be able to solve problems that are new or in new situations that you haven't been exposed to. And individuals with schizophrenia have a lot of problems with their executive function. The other thing is that they have um, slower information processing speed. And one of the greatest predictors about whether someone can hold a job in the competitive marketplace is whether or not they have impaired psychomotor speed. And so all of these dimensions of cognitive function impair how people function in the day-to-day environment. People notice that you can't remember or that you're, you, you didn't pay attention so you didn't hear what your boss said. So they affect your ability to do independent living skills, to budget, to take a bus, to make a nutritious meal. They interfere with your social uh, activity. You can't really pay attention sometimes to conversation. Uh, You may not be able to notice uh, what kind of facial expressions or voice tone people have. So social cognition is also impaired. Our ability to make good guesses about what people are thinking or feeling based on the affect on their face or their voice modulation. And so all of these things cause impairment In a person's ability to function. And this is why schizophrenia is one of the most disabling conditions worldwide for young adults. And it leads to huge costs in terms of lost productivity.
2: Don, thank you so much for that incredible description of cognition and schizophrenia. And I think you answered so many more questions, including why it's so important for us to recognize it and even the piece of uh, social cognition. And it really resonates with my experience in treating these patients on an inpatient unit where it's sometimes so difficult to communicate information to them and to have them retain that information and, and to move forward with that and to formulate a plan. And I can only imagine that if you have both that and negative aspects to your illness, that that combination is very challenging.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's devastating. And, you know, we, since we haven't had medications up to this point for cognition, we've really tried to work with it in other ways. So we can bring people into a lab and have them practice attention and memory and planning skills, hoping that that's going to generalize into functional outcome. What I've done with much of my career is sort of bypass those cognitive problems, set up alarms and signs and checklists and text messaging to keep people on track and uh, to make tasks a little bit easier for people so they don't have to use so much cognitive energy in order to be successful. Please join us for the second half of our conversation.
0: And that's part one of this two-part series, Special Spotlight. Please join us for part two. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa flash briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Rao and Veligant. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.